reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And when we get down to verse 12, we're going to skip to verse 17, so as not to confuse everyone. Chapter 6, verse 1. A prophet without honor. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled yet he liked to listen to him. And finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, 
and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's ask for God's help and uh, please do keep that passage open on page 1008. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we look at these responses to Jesus and his words, we pray, Father, that we would be those who have ears to hear, eyes to see. For we ask this by your Spirit's power, in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject we're looking at this morning, I think, is one that's going to make people uncomfortable. Uh, It's a subject that I don't think sits very easy with me and probably for a lot of people here. And that subject is the subject of division. Uh, The division that Jesus' words cause. See, I don't know about you, but division's not something we're comfortable with. Um, There's a book by um, Kate Fox. uh, I love this book. It's called Watching the English. And uh, it's a book that goes through why the English do what they do. And it's hilarious. It's not a comedy book, but it is absolutely hilarious as you read it through. Now, I realize not everyone's English here, um, but in this book, she explains that one of the traits of Englishness is to be agreeable. And she gives the example of the weather. Uh, Of course, there's lots on the weather. You're meant to talk about the weather, of course. Um, But she points out that when it comes to the weather, you're meant to be agreeable. If someone comes to you and goes, it's cold, well, you're meant to respond and go, yeah, it is cold, isn't it? You don't go, well, actually, I think it's pretty hot. In fact, if she tried doing this a few times and got really puzzled responses, you're meant to agree with the person. Uh, She goes on to write this um, in the book. Uh, We have already established that whoever speak greetings or openers such as cold, isn't it, must be uh, reciprocated. Uh, But etiquette also requires that the response express agreement. As in, yes, isn't it? Hmm, very cold. Failure to agree in this manner is a serious breach of etiquette. When the priest says, Lord, have mercy upon us, you do not respond, well, actually, why should he? You intone dutifully, Christ, have mercy upon us. In the same way, it would be very rude to respond, ooh, isn't it cold, with a, no, actually, it's quite mild. Now, what she's getting at there, I think she's onto something here by bringing in the kind of Church of England thing, is that actually division, uh, not being agreeable, it's not very English. In fact, it's not very kind of Church of England, as she hints at there. Can't we learn to have different views? And isn't it okay that we have different kind of attitudes to religion and Jesus? But Mark's passage this morning, I think, comes back at us by showing us that division is right at the heart of what Jesus' words do. In fact, we've got to ask, I think Mark tells us, that if Jesus' words don't divide, we've got to ask, have we understood them? Have we understood what they do? Now, how do we see this? Well, we see three episodes uh, put alongside each other. And notice in each of those three episodes, there's a word that's proclaimed and a response that's heard. And each three of those are to show us that actually the division of Jesus' words is normal. 
And actually, it's to be expected. Now, how do we see that? Well, we see three things here. They're on the back of your notice sheets. We see that a divided response to Jesus is inevitable. Secondly, we see a divided response to Jesus is intentional. And then finally, we're going to see that an indecisive response to Jesus is impossible. See, this first section running up to verse 6 is the first time Jesus goes back to his hometown. Uh, Jesus has, at this point, been going around the northern part of the country, around the Lake of Galilee, and uh, been focused on Capernaum. And now he heads to his hometown, uh, about 25 miles away. Now, I don't know what your experience of going home is. Um, Perhaps it's not a happy one. uh, But for me, I know it's special. It's not a particularly glamorous place I lived in, but every street has a memory. As I'm driving around, I'm thinking, yeah, I went on my BMX down that street, or I played football with those friends on that uh, pitch. There's something that kind of is loaded into that place, something that is always connecting me to it. Perhaps you've got that experience with Basingstoke. Come and tell me afterwards what that is. But I guess the same would be the same for Jesus could be said for Jesus. He's coming back to his hometown. He's coming back to the people he grew up with, to the people he kicked a football around with, played in the park with. But the reception he gets couldn't be any different to the warm welcome he would have expected. Verse 3, they start to say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That word offense, it's a very strong word. It's the word often translated fall away. It's where we get our English word scandal from. And it's this idea that not that they're just asking questions about Jesus. It's not just that they're exploring, but they're rejecting him. And those of us from perhaps more traditional backgrounds will know the pain of being separated from your family. It is the ultimate act of judgment to say to Jesus, you're out, go away, you're rejected. And Mark draws our attention to what gives rise to this rejection. Uh, Why is it they reject? Well, it's very interesting. Notice what it isn't. It's not that Jesus didn't convince them with his miracles. Uh, In verse 2, they notice the signs and they don't deny their power. And it's not that they're not impressed by Jesus. They recognize his wisdom in verse 2. But rather in verse 2, we're told that Jesus does something that causes this division. Verse 2 says that when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. See, throughout Mark, we're seeing that Jesus doesn't come just to heal. He does that with immense compassion, we saw last week. And he doesn't come just to inspire us, although he is hugely inspirational. But he comes with a message. And that message, we see in 1 verse 15, is to repent, to to turn 180 degrees, to change our minds, and to believe in him. And here Jesus takes that message to his hometown. He says to them, repent and believe. And that sparks this division. 
See, the people, they could handle the miracles. They loved the miracles. Of course they could. They, they could handle the wisdom that Jesus was inspirational. What they couldn't handle was that call on their life to change their ways, to acknowledge Jesus for who he is. And it shows us, doesn't it, that this is the sort of response that Jesus' words bring about. See, Jesus' call, it sparks something in us. We have that inbuilt desire for autonomy. And when Jesus comes along and says to, to, to us, repent and believe in me, trust in me, it brings something up in us. And if we've never had that experience... I wonder if we've really understood the gravity of what Jesus calls us to do. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that this is the sort of reaction that Jesus' words call um, cause. I, I don't know about you, sometimes I think, I love to get on with everyone. I love to be able to persuade everyone. I, I love to have the evidence, the persuasive words. But did not Jesus have those? And yet, the response was, even by his hometown to reject him. But why does it have to be this way? Um, those of us who are a bit sort of English or agreeable will be thinking, why can't it just be a little bit nicer? Why can't there be a kind of murky middle? Well, um, we see in our second passage that this division is intentional. So in this second part of the passage, uh, we read that Jesus sends out the 12 disciples uh, so far in Mark, he's called the disciples to himself with the view of sending them, but now he does send them. And notice again what it is they're to do, uh, or what they do rather, in verse 12. They went out and they preached that people should repent. Do you see the connection? Jesus has said, repent, believe the good news. And now he's delegating that to his disciples to say, to send them out. Uh, to ask them to tell people to repent and believe. But before we get there, we get this very, perhaps, strange list of what it is they're to pack on the journey, or rather, what it is they're not to pack on the journey. He says in verse 8, these were his instructions, take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but no extra tunic, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. See, why does Jesus give them these strange instructions? Why does he tell them, basically, leave your luggage at home? You can take a walking stick, but that's it. Well, imagine for yourself, uh, imagine yourself um, in their position. Imagine you've been told that you've got to go on this mission and you're to walk west from Basingstoke but you're not to take any contactless cards. You're not meant to have a packed lunch. There's no stops at Marks and Spencer's uh, on the way, or whatever your supermarket of choice is. You're to just take a walking stick if you need it. Well, I imagine that as you start walking, you'll start to get hungry. For me, it'll probably be by the time I got to Old Basin, that'll be enough. And maybe after you can push through that a little bit, maybe you'll get up to Hook, uh, who knows, uh, but I guess after a while, perhaps as you start getting to the outskirts of London, you're, you'll notice the sun is going down, and if it's this time of year, it's starting to get cold. 
Now, what are you going to do? The, the hunger pains are there. You're, you're starting to shiver. Well, you can't book into the Premier Inn. You haven't got any money. You can't tuck into your Greg's. You're not allowed one. See, and, and then you walk a bit further. And then you notice this town with their lights on, and you walk into the town, and people there, I don't know, woken or something, just utterly friendly. And someone welcomes you in and says, come and have some dinner here. Come and stay here. And you take them up on the offer. But imagine you got to a town and it wasn't friendly. And they didn't take you in and they just left you as you are. Well, you'd have to move on. You had no choice. And that's what Jesus' instructions are doing here. They're, They're forcing the disciples to rely on the hospitality of others. So if they get to a town that welcomes them, they can stay. But if they're not welcome, there's no hanging around. There's no kind of, well, I wonder if the people will move up, uh, warm up a bit. Uh, he's got to move on. And notice how they're to move on in verse 11. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Uh, this uh, dust shaking, it was a, a thing the rabbis used to do as they uh, were abroad and they came back into uh, Israel. They would dust, uh, shake the dust off their feet uh, because they believed that the, the, they were otherwise bringing Gentile dust or ground uh, back into Israel. And it was a sign that if God judged the Gentiles, well, uh, Israel uh, would, would not be caught up in that judgment. Now, it's an it's, you know, interesting logic, but, but it was a, a kind of accepted sign of judgment. See, the apostles assent with one message, repent and believe, And if people refuse it, well, they're to give this sign of judgment. They're to move on. Now, why is this here? Well, I don't think it's here as a kind of blueprint for how we do mission. It's not saying for us, make sure you go out this afternoon in just a T-shirt and make sure you don't eat anything, thankfully. That's, That's not what it's saying. It's not saying to our mission partners that we shouldn't pay for them or give them resources. Nothing like that. Rather, it's showing us the radical division that Jesus' words bring. See, the disciples haven't got the time or the ability to stay and persuade. There's a very direct call on the people they speak to. Repent and believe. And it's like that Mark here, or Jesus here, pours the future into the present as that future division is dramatically expressed in the people's response here. See, Jesus' words are not a kind of take it or leave it. They're not a for your information. They're not a, oh, I'll hang on to those and then perhaps in a couple of decades I'll think about it. See, Jesus' words are dramatic. They're like words like the house is on fire, get out. When you hear those words, you don't think to yourselves, well, I quite like this house, I'm going to stay here for a few years and then um, maybe I'll get out uh, after that. Or you don't think to yourselves, well, is that person really telling me the truth? Or you don't think to yourself, well, that's all very well and good, but this program's got 20 minutes to run. You get out the house. And Jesus' words are more like that than anything else. Now, it's not saying we as a church don't want people to explore what Jesus claims. I really do want to encourage that. And we don't want anyone to feel pressurized or made to say something they don't believe. We absolutely don't want that. 
But we do want to emphasize that when we look at Jesus, we're looking at someone who makes a very big call on our lives, that he asks us to repent and believe in him, to put our full weight on him. They're not words we can kind of take or leave. They're not words we can kind of just live with. But again, maybe we're asking, isn't that all a bit kind of extreme? Can't we be a bit more English about this? Well, hopefully our final episode will convince us why this matters. Because here we see at the end that an indecisive response to Jesus is impossible. Now here we meet Herod, and um, I know Woody's mentioned Christmas, but it's not that Herod. Uh, This is Herod's son, uh, Herod Antipas. And um, notice what happens to Herod. Well, verse 18, we're told that John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. In other words, hear what John's saying to Herod, this is not lawful, repent of this relationship. But Herod doesn't. He sits on the fence and he doesn't make a decision. It's not that Herod hated John. He likes John. He gets John in whenever he wants to hear John preach and he he likes to kind of explore things about God, I guess, having conversations in the the late late night conversations about what John believed and why Herod should turn. I I guess he did that uh, over and over. And we're told that Herod knew that he was a righteous man. He was very impressed with him. But he doesn't repent. It doesn't end the relationship, even though John tells him it displeases God. It's a classic English, if I'm allowed to say this, English response, isn't it? I won't get too into it. I'll kind of hold it there. I, I like Jesus. I'm not, you know, against him, but I'm not totally for him. Having your cake and eating it. But Mark puts this episode here to show us what disastrous consequences that has that indecision. Like any good story, there's always a baddie, and the baddie uh, here is Herodias, um, brother, uh, his, uh, brother, his brother's Philip's, it's quite complicated, the relationship, I'm trying to work it out, it's complicated to say, his brother Philip's wife, and uh, she basically had it in for John. John's given this message, you're not meant to have your brother's wife, and she hates John. But Herod keeps John safe. That is until we get to his birthday party. And Herod throws a big party, gets a big cake, lots of drink. And Herodias, uh, his daughter, comes in and she provides the entertainment. And whether it's the alcohol he's consumed or the, you know, the kind of thing about impressing your friends, he makes this rash oath in verse 22. He says, ask of me anything you want and I will give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And the girl's thinking, oh, wow. I don't know, swimming pool? A pony? She runs out to her mother and the mother sees an opportunity and she asks for John's, the Baptist's head on a platter. And the way Mark tells it, you can understand where Herod's coming from here, can't you? Herod faces a huge dilemma at this point. He likes John, he loves hearing from him, and he's kept him safe. But now he faces an agonizing choice. 
We're told in verse 26 that he's greatly distressed at having to kill John or save him and go back on his words. And so sadly, he is, makes this terrible decision of asking the executioner to go and get John's head and bring it on a platter. See, Herod thought the indecision, the, the, the murky middle, the having your cake and eat it option would work out for him. But he didn't repent. See, if he had repented, Herodias would have been far away at this point. There would have been no dancing, there would have been no rash over, no platter. But instead, he didn't make the action that John called him to make. And it points forward to a decision that all of us face. Because at the end of Mark's Gospel, we face a very similar episode in the death of Jesus. See, at the end of Mark's Gospel, we meet another ruler, Pilate. And like Herod, Pilate has to make an agonizing choice between someone he knows is righteous and good and the murderous desires of someone else. And like Herod's, we can understand Pilate's predicament. Pilate saw no reason to kill Jesus. He recognized his righteousness, but he still didn't do the right thing. And I think Mark puts this event right here as the disciples are sent out to show us that Jesus' words require a decision. Sitting on the fence doesn't work. See, whether you reject Jesus in a kind of dramatic way like his hometown did, or whether you reject Jesus in a kind of fence-sitting way like Herod did, ultimately it doesn't matter. They both end up in the same way. Denying that message of repentance and going uh, in a, a, and, and denying Jesus. See, Jesus is not someone to be kept at arm's length. He's not someone that we can just sort of have, that we can kind of wheel out on a Sunday just to entertain us. See, Jesus calls our whole lives to be devoted to him. And whether it's the dramatic denial or the fence-sitting, well, ultimately it doesn't really matter. Now, what does it mean for us as we take a pause and look at this whole chapter. Well, uh, does this mean, as I say earlier, that we're kind of to go out like the 12? Well, I don't think it means that. I don't think we are meant to see ourselves as the 12 being sent out here. See, the 12 are in a unique position here, and they are sent out in a unique way for the reasons I've explained. See, rather, I think Mark is pulling us into the narrative and asking, what's our response here? As we are those who hear the apostles' message to us, are we going to repent and believe? And he puts Herod here to show us that actually liking Jesus or liking hearing from him isn't enough. Herod thought it was. But actually, we've got to make a response. Now, as I say, we're not a church that pressurizes people. We're hopefully not a church that forces people to say things they don't believe. But it is possible that some of us come to church, we like what we hear, but we've never made that step to turn, to say to Jesus, I want to turn and believe in you. And Herod is a warning to us, yes, ask the questions, yes, explore things, please do that. 
But it's a warning to us that actually indecision doesn't work. And for those of us who have responded to Jesus' call, I guess there's the question here, have we understood the gravity of those words? I, I don't know about you, I, I can get over-familiar, I think, with Jesus' words. It's very easy to read it and just be so familiar with these words and forget the dramatic call they have on my life. If I'm never finding that kind of kickback in my heart, well, maybe that's because the Spirit is at work in me and great, but it might be that I've kind of become over-familiar with Jesus' words. And for us as a church, it's a reminder, isn't it, as a whole church, that as we seek to share this message with others, this is the sort of response we're going to get. Now, I'm like everyone else. I like agreeableness. I would never disagree with someone on the weather. I would don't like division. It's not something we want to stir up. It's not something we want to provoke. But if we're going to be faithful in taking Jesus' words out to our town and to the region around us, well, we should expect this sort of division. And at the end of this passage, we're reminded of why it is so worth it. Uh, we didn't read this out, but look at verse 31, that after the apostles come back, we read that because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. Yes, people deny. Yes, people divide. But as the apostles come back, there is a huge swell of people hearing this call to repent, seeing the life that Jesus brings, and coming to seek him. See, yes, we will face a difficult task. Yes, there'll be that awkward disagreement. But ultimately, there will be many who come to embrace Jesus and believe the good news. We've seen this morning that a divided response to Jesus is inevitable, that a divided response to Jesus is intentional, and an indecisive response to Jesus is impossible. Let's pray. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the honesty of Jesus' words. Thank you, Father, uh, for this picture of the power of Jesus' words. And we pray that we would be a church that responds rightly to them. Help us, Father, not to be over-familiar, to be indecisive or timid as we share. Please, Father, by your Spirit's power, take what we've heard this morning and enable us to carry it out. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.